Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 81 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, reckless reveler Gottlieb. What is up, fam? Not a whole lot. I just got back from a bachelor party this past weekend. I was certainly a reckless reveler, although at my age, it really doesn't take that much reveling to be reckless with it. Like just a little bit of reveling would have pushed me over the edge, but there is more than a little bit of reveling. I'm very happy to be back in my my safe confines and back talking about magic and, and things I feel like I have a good handle on because I am way too old to have any kind of handle on the Las Vegas club scene. And that's what, that's what I learned this weekend. Dude, I, I went to a bachelor party, I think the end of 2016 maybe, and did some reveling. And it was way too much, and I'm just like, I'm I'm too old for this, you know. And then I went to oh, GP yeah. Las, I went to GP Las Vegas. I had zero alcoholic beverages. I gambled zero times. I went to bed at 8 p.m. one of the nights. It was glorious. You made all the correct decisions. All I'm going to say, I'm not going to go too deep into my weekend. Obviously, we're a magic podcast. That's what we're here to talk about. But I was definitely. VIP at a Trey Songs concert. And if you have ever met me, there's no place on the planet that is less in line with kind of like the things I generally tend to do with my free time than being like stage side at a Trey Songs concert. But that's where my weekend took me. And I don't really know how it got to that point, but it did. Well, hey, now we're back to real life and everything is good again. And we get to talk about cardboard. Good. I'm excited. Okay. So this episode is our Corset 2019 Top 10s, uh, we're going to continue to do this Gottlieb style, which is uh, top down 10 to 1. We have not shared our lists with either person, so uh, maybe there are, there are going to be some surprises. We don't know. And this is explicitly standard only and no reprints. Yeah, we're being a little bit more disciplined with our approach to evaluation this time. To You know, it gets complicated when one person is considering the modern implications of a card and the other person isn't. And so we just cleaned it up a little bit. We're talking about M19 solely in the context of standard. Bring a little bit more clarity to the situation. Well, speaking of clarity, Cedric was very clear to me that Corset 2019 was the appropriate branding because Wizards has gone out of their way to brand the set as such. So I'm just saying. I try and say previews instead of spoilers. I try and say Corset 2019 instead of M19. I don't know, man. Whatever. I'll try. That's all I can say is they trained us for so long to use the M prefix and I'm looking at the cards with the big M19 on them. So it's very difficult for me to transition to the core set terminology, but yeah. I, I will try. I promise yeah. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Making the set symbol in M19 is kind of awkward if you're going to try and brand it as, I, I guess it is M19 core set 2019. I don't know. Well, C19, I would think of as like commander product, I I guess. That's how I would read it initially. And probably I have read it that way when it's been abbreviated that way. So, I mean, I understand why they're trying to change the perception. It's good for clarity's sake to refer to it that way. But it is going to take me a little while to catch up with the terminology for sure. Yeah, I, I agree that C19 is commander stuff, but 
core might make more sense to like an uninformed populace than just like M19. Cause you're just like M19. What the hell is that? You know, but like core kind of gives you an idea of what the product is about, I suppose. Yeah. It, it's really hard to say what precisely is so core about this set though. I'm not saying it's not an interesting set or a great set, or there's things that feel a little bit different about it. Cause there are, but it doesn't feel as strongly quote unquote core as maybe some previous core sets have, and and certainly not the older core sets, which, you know, in my head still kind of inform my perception of what is or what is not core. This doesn't quite resonate as a core set with me. That doesn't really matter to me, though. That being said, like, I just, I, I want sweet cards, and I, I think there's a lot of them here, so. I feel like at Common, you get a lot of the core set feel. Like, there's just a plethora of, like, very simple cards, right? And then at higher rarities, you start to see, like, a lot more in the text boxes, just like a lot of different stuff going on. Like a lot of these cards are very synergy based, you know, they need other pieces to like actually do stuff. There's not a lot of uh, cards that are just there strictly on rate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Uh, that's, that was my perception of the set as well. And and in fact, that, that strongly influenced my evaluation of where to put cards in my top 10 list because so, so many cards were so dependent on synergies um, when cards weren't, it kind of bumped them up a few points in my eyes. Okay. No, that kind of makes sense. Mine were kind of there on like, how well do I think this is going to hit given the synergies that do exist? Okay. Okay. I could see that approach as well. Well, you want to just jump into this then? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited to hear what you have for me. Okay. So <laughs> speaking of my uh, weirdo ranking scale, uh, with like synergies that may or may not be there. My number 10 is Tezzeret Artifice Master. Uh, so this is Mythic Rare, Blue Planeswalker, 3UU, 5 starting loyalty, plus 1, create a 1-1 one, one colorless Thopter token with flying, 0, draw card. If you control 3 or more artifacts, draw 2 cards instead, and minus 9, you get an emblem with at the beginning of your end step, search your library for a permanent card, put it onto the battlefield, and shuffle your library. So Tezzeret clocks in for me at number five. I will say that's high. Well, (laughs) now let me get into this point I want to make as well. So that's a lot higher than 10. I agree that that's moving up the scale quite a bit. For me, when I was kind of ranking these cards 10 through number one, I didn't think there was a whole lot of difference in the power level in kind of all the cards who were floating around between number 10 and number, say, three. Honestly, I kind of thought two cards stood above the other cards in the set, and then everything else was kind of flat on power level. So while there might be a pretty big disparity in how we're ranking these cards, I I just don't see a huge amount of difference between kind of all my cards floating on the lower end of my top 10, I would say. That's fair. Tesseret is just one of the cards where I think it is good, but when you look at the artifact decks that have tried to pop up and everything, they, they haven't been very successful, Tesseret does not strike me as a card that is, you know, what these decks were missing necessarily. Like, obviously, Tesseret could usher in, like, a new era of different artifact decks, and that's completely fine. But to me, it just, it struck me as a card that has a reasonable potential, actually, to just miss. And then once Kaladesh is gone, like, what is this card doing, you know? But oddly enough, uh, Tesseret is actually pre-ordering at 30 on SCG, so that is wild. So my perception of Tezzeret is that this is one of the better zeros we've seen in a very long time. Because 
you're you're only going to play Tezzeret in a deck which is going to get the large payoffs, I believe. You're going to play Tezzeret primarily in a deck that's going to be drawing two cards a lot of the time. And zero draw two cards. I mean, if, if you're ahead on board and you can afford to zero and draw two cards, that's going to be really difficult for decks to come back from. And, you know, a lot of times the test is like, oh, does this trade at parity with like something like Verasco's Contempt? Well, now it's trading up. Oh, and yeah. that's a really nice spot to be in for your five mana planeswalker. So you don't necessarily have to lose on the transaction. So so I really like the zero here. The plus one being a way to both protect Tezzeret as well as enable future zeros. I, I think that's important. So the kind of limiting factor I see for Tezzeret is I don't know that he's going to ultimate all that often. Like minus nine is a ton. The fact that the ability you're really looking to activate is the zero speaks to the fact that it's unlikely you're going to accumulate a lot of loyalty on this planeswalker. But still, I think the plus one and the zero make a nice package together. And I think that Tezzeret has the potential to really enable an archetype. But like you said, these artifact decks have struggled. It doesn't feel like this is the exact piece they've been missing. They haven't really been short on card advantage engines. You know, there's stuff like Karn floating around, obviously, that they've been able to turn to at this point. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if Tezzeret's upgrade on the zero is enough to to push these decks up a tier. Yeah, I mean, maybe with Tezzeret and to some extent Karn, what you actually want to be doing is building a more controlling version. So the other ones have been like, well, I guess I'm playing Antiquities War and Herald of Anguish and stuff like that. But maybe you're just a control deck now. You know, you have things like Metallic Rebuke. Fatal Push has a lot of ways to revolt. So you can actually trade up on mana with that card a lot. And it's very infrequently dead. So yeah, it's possible that, you know, with, with all that stuff going on, Battle at the Bridge, whatever, that you can actually just build like a reasonable deck that allows you to untap with Tezzeret and then you just start going ham with the zero. That's entirely possible to me. Yeah, a lot like an old classic Tezzeret, right? If you think of the first in- incarnation of Tezzeret, which was primarily used to tutor up control pieces, maybe this Tezzeret is playing a somewhat similar role in that you just establish some defenses and then use Tezzeret to shut the door on your opponent and close out any possibility of them getting back into the game. Yeah, Tezzeret could just be a protect the queen type of thing and uh, is likely very effective at doing that. Just hoping that, you know, all the, the pieces are there and everything. And uh, I do think that this set like definitely added some to the, the artifact synergy deck. So, Right. There's some cards here, uh, some other artifacts for sure that merit consideration. And I don't believe any actually made my top 10, but there were some floating around the realm of consideration for those slots. Word. All right. What's your top 10 or number 10 rather? Uh, my number 10 is Nexus of Fate. I don't want to talk too much about it because this is the card we've already talked about probably more at length than any other card in M19. Um, listeners of the show know my feelings on this card. It's it's narrow, but I think it has a specific archetype it could enable and absolutely be a key piece of. I've expressed my feelings about this being the, the bio box card. I think that's real problematic, but I don't want to dredge it all up. That's my number 10, Nexus of Fate. No chance in hell. Okay. Uh, unsurprisingly, did not make my top 10. I, I think you may be surprised by this one. I'm still standing on that for the time being. Some of the drafts I have of these decks look really powerful. And to be fair, I haven't played games with them yet. I don't have my hands on any nexuses of fate. Uh, and I don't have like an M19 standard tournament that I need to be jamming games against myself for right now. So I haven't quite gotten to the point of sleeving up nexus of fate. In my head, it makes a lot of sense. So. Word. I, I just keep thinking of, you know, four duress, doomfall, some pressure. And I just can't imagine how you're ever going to win. We shall see. We shall. Time will tell. All right, my number nine, Reclamation Sage. 
I, I have to stop you. You violated the rules. Oh, the it is a reprint. No, it's a reprint. It is yeah. a reprint. I'm declaring a mistrial. This this whole top ten list is void. I forgot it was a reprint. Yeah, I did. I did this last set. I named Syncopate as one of my top yeah, ten non-reprint yeah. cards. Okay, um, okay. So now we're even. Well, let's let's talk about this for like a split second, right? Sure. Would, would this card have made your top ten had it not yes. been a reprint? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what if it was a functional reprint? <laughs> I don't know. We didn't discuss functional reprints and whether they were allowed to make the uh, to make the cut here. All right. So this this card is rad, right? And I'm pretty happy that this exists. This could see main deck play very easily. I think. Yes. Uh, not only are there like Heart of Kieran's cast outs, but like Argul's Bloodfast and Search for his Canto. Like this card is like actually kind of nuts, I think, in the format. But I can replace it with a card that was that was on deck, I think. Maybe move Tezzeret up one and then uh, put like Spitflame on my list. Spitflame is an interesting card. I want to hear you talk about that card because it didn't make my list, but it was a card I considered very carefully. Why are you high on Spitflame? So from playing these red black like aggressive kind of mid-rangey decks like they don't have any like card advantage or filtering power it is very much just like i'll I'll play a big thing can you deal with it and then hopefully you are the person who sticks the last big thing and you get to ride that to victory right and spitflame kind of like adds this new dimension to your deck where granted uh this card doesn't kill anything particularly well like steel leaf champion sure but that's not a like very prominent part of the metagame or anything. I think it is a little bit better with Soulscar Mage, which I don't necessarily want in my Spitflame deck, but it's also kind of cute if you're doing the whole dragon thing that this set is talking about fairly loudly with Sarkin Fireblood and Bone Dragon. There's the other five mana, five, five dragon, Demanding Dragon, uh, Nicol Bolas, you know? So I feel like this card is going to hit. So I, I just couldn't get over the fact that three mana is a ton, and four damage to target creature is not really good removal. And that's what ultimately kept Spitflame off my list. And I, I wanted to include it because I kept thinking back in my head to old like Mardu style dragons lists, which are, you know, very mid-rangey style decks that just basically play dragons and get a little bit of value here and there. And they're able to close out the game that way. And bad. Let me tell you, pretty bad. <laughs> well, I what's the name of the card that the white card that gave your burn spells like lifelink and Grandmaster. I love that card. I have such a weakness for that card. So no, that, whatever. That card is red. we don't have to debate four year old standard decks, but you know, that's kind of the vein of where I see this type of card existing. A, a very mid range style deck that could benefit from a source of card advantage. I just can't get over the rate though. I, I don't think the rate's quite good enough to get there, but you know, if you look at some of the synergies, I, I, think Sarkin is a good card. Spoiler, we'll talk about that more more later. Um, I think that very obviously dragons are doing something here. They're not quite at the power level I would like for me to go all in on dragons at this point, but there's always dragons, right? There's always a new dragon to be had and, you know, Glorybringer's still around too, so let's not forget that. Right. Um, so does it have potential? Yes. I don't want to beat you up for including this in your top 10 list, especially since it's an honorable mention inclusion that you had to scramble for a little bit. <laughs> But but I don't think it's going to get there. I think it's going to fall just short. So I don't think it's going to be four of like with 20 dragons and that's your deck. I think it's going to be like a one or two of. And okay. it's going to work with Sarkin and it's going to give you like a little bit more punch in the late game and whatever. You know, that's about it. Yeah. 
We'll see. I, I, I'm not that far off your opinion. Like it was a card that interested me. So it, it's possible it hits in small numbers, especially if you're tempering your expectations for the card. I can get on board with that as, as a one of along with Sarkin. It makes a lot of sense to just have that card floating around and you never want to draw multiples of it. But if you have one in the late game, you're going to be pretty happy you do. Look, man, it, it was an honorable mention. <laughs> I could try and sub in something else if you want. If- no, that's fine. I think this is that's like the sweet spot for an honorable mention card. Like it has some potential. Right. You want it to get there, but you're not quite sure it's going to turn the corner. Fine. Give us your number nine. My number nine is Dark Dweller Oracle. Ooh. And I, I don't have a home for this card yet, but it deserves one. It's a really interesting version of this effect. And I think that as time goes on, Wizards tends to be more and more careful with sacrifice outlets because they often turn out to be very, very good. And it wouldn't surprise me if Dark Dweller Oracle gets included in that lot of cards, which is very, very good. I have to believe that soon Sam Black will be giving us many, many decks built around Dark Dweller Oracle. This seems like just his exact type of card that he will love. And I think rightfully so. I think there's a lot that you can do with this card in standard. Obviously, you can look at token synergies, which are kept down a little bit by Chain Whirler or entirely by Chain Whirler. But there are those synergies. There's also synergies with all the recursive creatures we have floating around right now. There's some bigger tokens to be made, which I'll certainly be talking about later on. And then you can see if there's any goblin synergies you can lean towards. So I like the fact that Dark Dweller Oracle can both enable you to get lands, uh, hit your land drops, it enables you to find spells in the late game. It just does a lot. And while it's very random, if you're getting paid on both sacrificing your creature and the card you get off the top of your library, I think Dark Dweller Oracle will turn the corner and, and be a worthy inclusion in standard. I agree completely, and this probably would have been a better honorable mention for me because this did not make my list, although I'm a really big fan of this card. Like you mentioned, there's just been a lack of good sacrifice outlets, you know, and this is certainly one of them, and there are a lot of really cool synergies, including like Scrap Heap Scrounger and Gate to the Afterlife, both mm. of which are pretty sweet, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what this card can do, and... Uh, this this strikes me as one of the cards where it's like, oh man, this like looks really cool and it might hit eventually, but it's not it's not a powerhouse. It's not gonna be like, you know, some eight dollar card or whatever. It's just gonna like show up and be awesome. It's gonna be like a very cool tool to have around. Yeah, a, l- a little engine card. And that's kind of where I fall on a lot of these cards. Just like there's only a couple powerhouses here, I think, and, and a lot of interesting engine cards and interesting build arounds and Dark Dweller Oracle is just another one of those for me. Absolutely. My number eight is a. Oh, and it's another reprint, man. What am I doing? Come on, right. back to back. Okay, this this one I knew was a reprint, and you included it anyway. I, I did. <laughs> okay, so my top seven are not reprints. I promise, but it was the Johnny's Pride Mate. All right, fine. Let me put in Dark Dweller Oracle there. Okay, so Dark Dweller Oracle takes your eighth spot. You know, I am a mess. I'm no, it's hard. Look, I had the same problem. I, I get it. I don't know why I had this blind spot for you know reprints. Now I'm checking my list to make sure I don't have any reprints on there. <laughs> I literally had a list of, of cards and then like a list of reprint cards that I wanted to talk about. And somehow some of those just made it on my list. You confused the two lists somehow. Oh my God. To your point, a Johnny's Pride Mate, it's an interesting card. Uh, there's a lot of life gain here. It'll be a fun card in standard, but we're not talking about them. We're not allowed. There's so many of these cards I want to talk about. There's a lot of great reprints here and and, and plenty I would have included. And coming coming in for number seven for me, Diagraph Cool. <laughs> Six with Crucible of Worlds. Just move yeah. through them all. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, just kidding. Okay, so yeah, let me put 
<laughs> Let me move Tezzeret up to seven. Okay, Tezzeret. So now Tezzeret is almost number five on your list. It is. Hey, hey, my number five. Hey, man. Uh, yeah, we'll put Dark Dweller Oracle on there. Okay, that sounds good. So why don't you... Uh, so, oh, I guess I have to give you my number eight since yeah, uh, yeah. since I followed the rules and did not include only reprints. My number eight is Runic Armasaur, which is not a card I've heard people talk about all that much. So I'm curious to hear your reaction here. I've thought about this card a lot. It just this is the in the harsh mentor world of things, and it's a three mana card. And I've spoken not completely at length about my three mana creature rule for standard, but it is basically like if if a three mana creature does not have some sort of like ETB or die trigger or have like an immediate impact on the battlefield. I don't think that it's necessarily going to show up. And certainly a three mana two five is not impressing anyone really. It it does live through Chandra and everything, but like, do people even care? You know, how much do you expect to actually like get out of this thing? Or like, what are you hoping to shut down? Like walking ballista? Like your thing already has five toughness, man. Let me remind you of a deck which kind of terrorized Standard not too long ago, which played Long Tusk Cub, Warlord Virtuoso, probably a bunch of other activated abilities that I'm thinking about. Also, I, I want to check on this because honestly, this could influence... I, I still think Runic Armasaur is good, but this might move me up or down a few spots. If you cycle a land, that's an activated ability. Does it still count as a land though when it's being cycled? Like, Do you draw a card if your opponent cycles a land? Uh, I think so. Okay, that would be my expectation. I wasn't 100% on that. And, and at the same time, like activating a Scrap Heap Scrounger would still draw you a card, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, just making sure. Um, I, I think that all these things being present, there's a lot of activated abilities on creatures. You know, Hazaret, Walking Ballista, like you mentioned. Runic Armasaur has a huge, huge back end. Five is a lot. It survives a lot of stuff. There is some points in the format where I would have been very happy to see this card. It obviously depends on what type of removal we're looking at, but when you consider a lot of the removal that's being played, Runic Armasaur looks pretty good in the face of a lot of it. You mentioned Chandra already. You know, if things like Cut see a lot of play, you get some points there. It blocks everything really well for is kind of a break point. It survives Glorybringers. I don't know. I think it's a, a good enough package of stats and abilities that it could potentially see some play in standard. I could also see it being relegated entirely to a sideboard role. Uh, and there's only certain matchups where you actually want this card. That really wouldn't surprise me all that much. But it was interesting. It made me think a lot. And I was able to come up with spots where I was like, wow, this card actually would have been really good, you know, in in something like an energy mirror to shut down your opponent's access to those key cards. You know how important Warlord Virtuoso was in Energy Mirrors. And a lot of times in those decks, you had so much energy floating around that you would have just been able to harness Lightning it, and then you would have traded pretty badly there. Um, but certainly as newer Warlord Virtuoso's decks came out, they didn't have the access to energy they did previously. The Harness Lightning was decreasing in numbers at some point. So I think Armasaur could have made an impact in the past, can make an impact in the future. As it sits right now, like going into this M19 defined format, I'm medium on it. I think it's going to see some sideboard play, but has increased potential in the future, I would say. This and Sun Cleanser just reek of development for this set happening at the wrong time. Yeah, Sun Cleanser, I, I agree with that entirely. This card, I think it goes a little bit broader than something like Sun Cleanser, but I do, I do get your point. It's obviously addressing those cards I named. Yeah, and they're not particularly playable right now. Maybe that changes. I don't know what's going to happen with the BNR announcement. I guess that is potentially exciting. 
maybe something comes back. Maybe something like maybe James Miller gets banned or something. I don't, I don't, I don't have no idea what's going to happen, but yeah, maybe these cards are good again. Maybe it's just like the longest of cons. Could be. And also I'll mention that they're one of the other cards I'm very high on is also a creature with an activated ability. So we'll, we'll circle back around when that time comes. Okay. My number seven. Let's do it. Psy Master Thopterist. That would be the card in my honorable mention slot. Okay. So Psy is to you for a legendary human artificer, 1-4. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. And 1-U, sacrifice two artifacts, draw a card. Psy has a lot going for him. Four toughness for three mana is decent. Uh, it does not live through all the things you mentioned before when talking about the Armasaur, but it does, in theory, block like a Scrappy Scrounger un- until your entire board gets decimated by a Chain Whirler. But this is also another legendary creature for Mox Amber, potentially. And if you are doing blue artifacts and you have some legendary creatures, like Mox Amber works pretty well with, with Psy, I think. And the Sec 2 Artifacts draw card is pretty nice when a lot of these decks were just using things like servo schematic and prophetic prism anyway so this thing seems like an engine assuming that uh, a bunch of one one colorless thopters is actually good which in a world of chain whirler i don't think that that is necessarily true but how many chain whirlers are they going to be able to play over the course of a game you know yeah i think where i ultimately fell on psi is that in a set filled with synergy dependent cards I thought that you were being asked to do a little bit too much here. You have to warp your deck so dramatically to take maximum advantage uh, of this card. It can be a really miserable top deck. Drawing it in multiples is problematic. So like you're being asked to build around this card and there's all kinds of problems with building around it, I think. Is it a bad top deck though? You, like the, the back ability kind of makes up for that, you know? Okay, I guess I guess it's not a bad top deck at like parity but if you're behind it's not going to catch you up in most places right uh likely it is certainly mana intensive yeah i mean there are also like a lot of like really fringy cards that i'm probably going to sink a lot of time into for no reason just like storm the vaults okay uh, you know just like i mean what do you see that deck looking like that's, no, that's interesting like, but like flip side Telerian academy like you can make size gonna make a bunch of thopters so that makes word of invention potentially good uh, Storm the Vaults was not in the list that I posted, but like could be a different thing. And then so it's like you have Psy to Fuel Whirr or uh, Storm the Vaults to Fuel Whirr, and that can lead to the Immortal Sun, which then makes all your things Chain Whirler proof and like doesn't seem like that big of an ask to me. But Psy and Tezzeret are in different decks, I think. Agreed. And I think a lot of people are looking at them like, oh, you know, they both like artifacts or whatever. But I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that Psy is just like an affinity-ish deck, like the in-soul artifact deck. So kind of put aside your feelings about the deck for the time being. We saw the blue-green Karn deck at the last Pro Tour. Do you think Psy is an inclusion in that deck? I think Psy wants you to be like lower to the ground, you know? Like, obviously, you, you don't necessarily want, like, Verderous Gear Hulk in your deck. And even, like, Glitness Crane might not be good enough because, like, the 1-3 is not super relevant. But Llanowar Elf seems okay. Harvester definitely seems good. I, I would just want to try and beat down my opponents. Yeah, this is the time I'd like to propose something like Metallic Mimic on Thopters and 
somehow right. lean that way. But that's a scary proposition right now. I, I don't know. I guess I want to cross my fingers for a chain whirler ban with this one. Word. When when you have Metallic Rebuke, your game against Chain Whirler is actually quite good. Oh, that's know? fair. That's fair. You have a proactive answer to it. The problem was always like, oh, I can't play like Metallic Mimic and have Rebuke open even on turn three because there's just like not a lot of good cheap artifacts. But now it's like with Psy, I'm just like, sure, let's play Sparring Construct. I don't care, you know? Yeah, it's worth it at that point. Um, well, it's a, a card that intrigues me. I'm excited to see if someone can put the pieces of the puzzle together. If we were talking about these cards in all contexts, it might've bumped up a few points. I've seen people mention it in affinity. Don't know if I'm a buyer there yet. I tend to like, I stay out of those conversations to some extent. I want to hear what like true affinity masters, people who have thousands and thousands of games with the deck. I take their opinion first before I insert my opinion on what's playable and affinity. I've seen people mention it. For actual affinity, isn't the game plan to dump your hand, then play like a Master of Ethereum or Edge Champion, whereas Psy wants you to do things in reverse? I, th- I think it's like a post-board card, like trying to play a longer game. And, and But you're right. It does ask you to do things in reverse. And I would argue that if that's what you're doing in post-board games, ugh, maybe, maybe you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you should be trying to go all in even harder than you are. Yeah, uh, and I, I think Karn is just a better part of that game plan where you can just spit out constructs or draw more cards you know could be could be like i said that's why i let the affinity masters weigh in so we'll see where this card falls on on that end of things but uh for the time being not making my top 10 list but i am vaguely interested in science seeing what it can do what's your number seven cleansing nova this one's easy i mean i have to assume cleansing nova is going to show up at some point for you right nah it was, what? It was come on it was one of my last cuts I mean, Cleansing Nova is just, it's going to be the new Wrath uh, when Fumigate goes away. It is versatile. There's some problems with it in combination with the way, you know, blue-white control currently operates in terms of it being very, very enchantment heavy. That may change going forward. You know, this may incentivize it to change depending on what opposing decks look like. I don't think this is one of the best Wraths we've ever seen, but it's going to be an important card in the format without a doubt. Uh, and there are other spots where this card is pretty huge, a pretty huge get. Uh, certain metagames, this would be a, a, a very obvious inclusion for not just controlling white decks, but also aggressive white decks that need to clean up things uh, like cast out, like any other enchantment-based removal that the control decks are playing. So something like Mardu Vehicles could reliably board this in and deal with cast out and get back their planeswalkers that have been dealt with. So I think Cleansing Nova is just a good, solid card in a set that is very dependent on synergies. I like to just have my good, solid card that I know there's an existing archetype that's going to be happy to see copies of this. And Cleansing Nova is going to see uh, some small amount of play at first and increasing play over time, I believe. I basically agree with that. I'm just not excited about it. No, it's not exciting. It's it's very boring. Another five mana wrath. Nobody's going to flip out over it, but still have to acknowledge it. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of just want to take shots at like the weirdo cards. Obviously this card is going to see play. I just, I don't think it is going to be super huge, certainly before rotation because there are better answers. And like you pointed out, it does have like a lot of awkwardness going on. Like for blue white control specifically, I think you just get to choose the first part of the card and that's it. And that is fine. And yeah, maybe a green white, aggro deck maybe wants to side in like their planar outburst or fumigate like they've done before and now they have 
something that's a little more versatile and that's cool. You know where this card is interesting is in like a blue white control mirror where it's it's possible that the backside of this will set up really well for you in just some random game and will be a complete blowout. I'm not saying include it based only on that premise, but just a little interesting wrinkle. I think you would rather just side it out instead of- Oh, like oh yeah, for sure. For sure. But I'm saying game ones where like these cards are in your deck, it's very possible that you could end up in a position where it's a huge blowout. Yeah, but then you're trying to resolve a five mana sorcery. And at that point, like it could be Teferi. And if like a five mana sorcery that is good for you is resolving, you're probably in a good spot already. And they're going to know it exists because they have it. So they're going to try to not have like two of your things cast out at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it is, it is going to be super weird. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see just how much this gets picked up at first, but in, in the long run, it's a no brainer. Yeah. So we are on my number six. Uh, yes, that's correct. So normally I would put these weirdo cards at number nine and 10, but this one I'm actually super confident in. And that is Fountain of Renewal. Wow. You mentioned this card previously. I I do think this card is quite good. It didn't make my list. For you to have that level of confidence in it, I'm excited to hear what you have to offer me right now. Well, I mean, the rest of my list was reprints. so (laughs) (laughs) That's true. A little easier to make space. Yeah. Fountain of Renewal is a generic mana for an artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, you gain one life, three, sacrifice Fountain of Renewal, draw a card. This is not the missing piece, but this is definitely a missing piece for a lot of the Metallic Rebuke decks out there. And it's just like a fine card, too. I mean, in the meantime, you're you're just gaining life, but you can also just cash it in late game. Like, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this card. It's like the sweet spot in the curve, you know, like... This, this card is just awesome. I do like it as curve filler for decks which would otherwise give up this spot and can benefit in some way from the synergies. Uh, I'm interested to see what these life gain decks look like because it's very clearly kind of like a pre-con. There's a lot of different pieces that are begging for this kind of persistent life gain effect. You mentioned Johnny's Pride Mate earlier is one of them. I, I do think that's a deck worth exploring. It may not quite be there yet, but we are getting close to a rotation where everything gets another shot and you know this could be a strategy that's supported even more as we move through the next couple blocks yeah even having this thing chilling around and then you play like crested sunmare and pass right like that that sort of thing is just so low investment it is it is and that's the thing is usually any kind of life gain card is high investment you're asking for a lot of things to go right do you have an opinion on nightmare's thirst while you're high in this card do you think that card's playable what card is this? Uh, B, instant, you gain one life, target creature gets minus X, minus X, where X is the amount of life you gain. Correct. This is maybe the type of card that can kill something bigger in the later stages. The problem is that, like, early on, like, killing a 3-3 three, three or whatever is just likely not going to happen, which kind of sucks. Like, you're going to be able to kill a Bowman early and maybe, like, a big thing late, but it's not going to do what you want in the middle stages of the game when you kind of need a removal spell. So this is like, if you are super, super greedy, you might play this card, you know, but there's also like not a lot of good uh, black payoff stuff from what I've seen. Right. So like right. my, my life gain, like rough drafts have just mostly been mono white. Okay. That makes sense. I I think usually this archetype spreads out to both colors. It's usually a black, white archetype. And if it is a plant, we'll likely see some black support as time goes on. It, se- it seems like uh, just a limited card. Okay. I can accept that. But I don't know. I mean, you're even cutting cards in, in like, if you build, like, a mono-white life gain deck, right? Because you have, like, Resplendent Angel, 
uh, Johnny's pride mate, the horse, the angels, removal spells, maybe a Johnny. Uh, you could play the colorless horse that gains you life. Uh, yeah. Fountain of renewal. Like you have, you have so many options. So yeah, I don't, I don't think going into black is really necessary, but like the artifact, the artifact is good. That's your jam. Any other potential homes for this card that you're working on right now? Or is it pretty much isolated to, to those type of artifacts, energy and life gain synergy decks? Yeah, it, it is improvised in life gain. And I mean, Foundry, Inspector, Tishar, nonsense, right? Like there was that blue white deck that was floating around. Eric Hawkins just 5-0'd a league a couple of days ago with a white black version of like Tishar, mm-hmm. Metallic Mimic, nonsense. And then in the green blue Karn deck, they played Implementer Ferocity. And I think maybe Fountain Renewal is better there. It's like kind of close. Interesting. So I may as well call out my number six card because it's kind of in line with a lot of the things you're talking about right now. And that is Resplendent Angel, uh, another card capable of gaining some life. So Resplendent Angel is a one colorless, white, white, three, three flyer at the beginning of each end step. If you gained five or more life this turn, create a four, four white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. Uh, And then three colorless, white, white, white until end of turn. Resplendent Angel gets plus two, plus two and gains lifelink. This is a card which is just a fine ball of stats on its own. Uh, three three flyer for three is fine-ish, but it absolutely takes over late games where you're able to untap with it and get some mana. A lot of synergies, you know, everyone's familiar at this point with the Shalai synergies, and it's very easy to play Lyra in your deck and you know just kind of go crazy with Resplendent Angel and get all kinds of value from it. While all at the same time, it's just a totally fine creature on its face. So again, in a set packed with synergies and packed with cards that kind of ask a lot from you. I like Resplendent Angel is just a good, strong card, uh, fine rate, early beater that takes over the late game. Did not make my list, but is definitely very strong. Like hearing you just describe that, it seems like so similar to Nicol Bolas to me, and people are like poo-pooing all over Nicol Bolas. More on that later on, on my end. Okay, fair. Uh you know, like if you ever get to activate this and hit your opponent, you get an angel, like the game is going to spiral out of control, right? But in the meantime, it's like this card is just fine on its own, right? Yep. 10 point life swing all at, all at the same time as you put a 4 4 flying vigilance creature into play. That seems pretty good to me. Resplendent Angel has a little bit something extra going for it where you don't necessarily need to sink in the mana to actually get the payoff, which is kind of nice. But that does mean that you have sunk in mana elsewhere where, like, you know, if you're, if you get to attack with a Lyra, you know, like you are also doing quite well, right? Sure, but absolutely. They, they they strike me as very similar cards. Cool. I am surprised this didn't make your list. I'm very curious as to what we're going to see at the top end of your list here. Ooh, a, a bunch of nonsense. Of course, of course. A bunch more reprints, <laughs> maybe? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I had to redo my entire list, actually. Good. Because it was all reprints. <laughs> so this was your number six, yeah? This was my number six, yes. Well, number number five for me is Nicol Bolas the Ravager. Okie doke. So this, this is my uh, number one card, by the way. Okay. One UBR legendary creature, Elder Dragon, four, four flyer. When this enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card Four UBR exile this, then return him to the battlefield transformed under his owner's control. Activate this ability. Anytime you could play a sorcery. And then the backside is a busted planeswalker. That's just game over. Yeah. Completely bonkers. So my, <laughs> My rating of Nicol Bolas kind of went down because the last couple of days I've been testing like various Grixis decks and they've been bad. 
They've been real bad. <laughs> so is that a function of this card or is that a function of the Grixis decks? No, it was it was me testing like Grixis for nationals. It was like, oh man, like black blue mid-range is good, but you need something to help with God Pharaoh's gift. And Whirler Virtuoso could be good because okay. it pressures Argul's blood fast, right? So I was like, well, let's try and play Whirler and a braid and siphoner and scarab god, right? And it's just like I've just been losing. So it's like, well, if I added Nickel Bolas to the mix, would this actually get better? I'm not really sure. And then it just it kind of fell a couple slots. Yeah. So if you remember last week, I said I was lower on this card. And then we talked a little bit more and I thought a little bit more. And as I was going through and pulling out other cards, I keep bringing up the same point where I feel like so many of these cards are very, very dependent on synergies. And there's not a lot of just pure power here where like on its face, this card has a lot built into it. All I have to do is play this card and I get rewarded for it. Nickel Bolas feels that way to me. Like including it in any Grixis deck is upping the power of Grixis to some extent. And while I'm not crazy about that archetype as it stands right now, there's a lot of cards which aren't being played in Grixis. There's a lot of other forms of Grixis we've seen in the past. And I think it's time to start exploring some of those, be it you know Grixis Dragons, or just a larger Grixis list, which is going Nicol Bolas into Glorybringer and just holding the game early and relying on these incredibly strong dragons in the late game. And then going to something like Liliana or Scarab God. And then there's all those synergies between Liliana, Scarab God, and Nicol Bolas and bouncing them back all the time. And it's very easy to see how you can up the power level of any Grixis deck you're building by including Nicol Bolas in it. And that's why this ultimately came out for me as the number one card. I think just pure power on its face, this is the most powerful card in the set. Do I think it'll be the most widely played card in the set? Do I think it'll be the most successful card in the set? Out of the gate? No, I I don't feel that way. But in terms of getting a long-term stranglehold on the format, a card that's kind of always around in, in some percentage for its entire time in the metagame, this seems like the card in the set that's kind of a no-brainer for me. Yeah, I I think my my reaction was a little too knee-jerky because I also, uh, for my article last week for Star City, I made like a red-black splash Nicol Bolas Dragon's deck that, that did look really, really good and Nicol Bolas looked really good. And I think like minimizing the color requirements and making it so like a lot of the lands don't need to be tapped and all of that jazz is going to help a lot. And... I don't know. I guess like Nicol Bolas would likely help because I would get some power for four mana and then would have Liliana and like Torrential Gear Hulk has been very bad for me. So my deck has been like clunky and bad at the top end. Mm-hmm. So I think Nicol Bolas would actually help a lot with that. So I, I think I was a little too knee jerky and it, this should be like number three for me probably. I also think there's a ton of interesting ways to to build around this card. There's Sarkin, there's Dragon's Horde, which is a card that I, I think is actually fine. I don't see a lot of talk about that. And the three mana mana rack has to be pretty good to see play. But if your three mana mana rock is going to draw you two to three cards over the course of the game as well, I'm getting interested now. I, I, I'm I'm certainly considering it. And I think that card is actually pretty good and a lot of people are sleeping on it right now. I don't know. It just seems like the easiest card to put at number one for me. And while it's not going to storm out of the gates, I don't think 
I do think it will eventually find a foothold in the format and just become one of the pillars that continues to be built around. Just like the Scarab God is, you know, these cards come and go, they rotate in and out, but the Scarab God will always be there in some extent. And Chandra is another one of those pillars of the format. All those type of cards rotating in and out, Nickel Bolas is going to step right up into that top tier of, of standard format defining cards. Word. I can totally see that. What is your number five? Tezzeret. We already talked about it. So oh, we, can, we can go back to you. Let's see, have your next one. My number four is Thorn Lieutenant. Okay, not on my list. Damn. I found this card a little underwhelming, to be honest, but you go ahead. You get your chance to sell me on it before I, I bash it. 1G23 Elf Warrior. When Thorn Ele- <laughs> I want to say Thorn Elemental. Thorn Lieutenant, <laughs> they're basically the same card. Yeah, Whenever exactly. Thorn Lieutenant becomes the target of a spell or ability and opponent controls, create a 1 1 green Elf Warrior creature token. 5G Thorn Lieutenant gets plus four plus four until end of turn. So. Two mana, two, three, not bad, is an elf, which is certainly upside. This card is quite good against the various red decks, and the red decks, for a period, were very, very good at stopping green decks from getting any sort of traction because they had things like Urshaker Kenra on Crap Crasher. Uh, now they have Soul Scar Mage plus Chain Whirler, which obviously, you know, this doesn't really help against, but maybe Chain Whirler will leave, who knows? Uh, but I think that this kind of has the potential to swing the ball back in the green camp, potentially. And just like late game, it's a it's a fine threat. And if they have to fatal push this thing, you still get a little bit of value. Uh, I, I don't think it's like, you know, completely egregious over the top or anything, but I do think that green decks were missing a solid two drop because uh, Resilient Kendra and Merfolk Branchwalker were not insane or anything. Like they were playable, but this thing is like actually something that you're pretty happy to put in your deck. So I think against most non-red decks, it's pretty easy to invalidate the 1-1 token. Like you're fairly happy just killing this thing and moving on about your day. And it's not a huge loss. If there were some more tribal synergies that I think were going to be leaned into a little harder, you know, if elves or warriors mattered and this was likely to be a 3-3 and and not actually play as a 1-1, I'd be a lot higher on Thorn Lieutenant. It's easy to look at this card and say, oh, here's Sylvan Advocate. Sylvan Advocate didn't demand six mana from you right. when it was getting large. <laughs> yeah, you, got, you got that for free. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think this card is a little underpowered to be that high on your list, especially in the face of something like Bolus. You know, this card over Bolus is a tough sell for me. Uh, it's I not more it's- powerful. It's going to see way more play, though. Like this, this fills a very specific hole that Green Decks had, which I think is why it's so high like that's why it's so important okay so in the moment i can agree with this assessment this seems like a very important card but it's likely at some point in thrown lieutenant's life this will be a card that's dwarfed by some other green two drop and becomes you know relegated to the back bins and 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 the bargain basement of your local card store just because the power level isn't there for me as it stands right now, I can buy this as an important part of the green curve. Long term, I'm selling Thorn Lieutenant, unless we see some kind of elf or warrior synergy where this 1-1 one, one token matters a lot more than it currently does. Because it's basically like a dies trigger. Like it, There's going to be very few times where Thorn Lieutenant gets targeted and lives to make another token. Dude, it's it's actually so messed up that they can Earthshaker their own Earthshaker, you know? Wait, like, hold on. Sell that to me again. So like, what if, if you play this on turn two and then they played Urshaker on turn two, and if they had to target your Thorn Lieutenant, that'd be so incredible, but they can actually just target their own thing. Oh, uh, so I got you. I got you. Yeah. They're not forced into targeting it. Yeah. That, that would be backbreaking for sure. But as you said, not the case. Uh, but regardless, uh, I do think that this card helps swing red matchups, which is good. It's one of the reasons why 
green decks are really underrepresented right now. And I don't think that the, t- the token is completely irrelevant. Like my assessment of Pia Noir has gone up a lot. And granted, like Pia has a lot of other different abilities that also help the token along. Mm-hmm. But like this is another creature that you either get to help, you know, crew a heart of Kirin or uh, attacking to a settle the wreckage to get an extra land or even just like blocking or whatever. Like, it, like a one, one is not irrelevant, especially when it comes for free, you know? So I don't know. I don't, I don't want you to undersell that aspect of the card as a thing that, Oh, like effectively doesn't matter. It's trinket text. When like, I, I, I kind of feel like it's one of the important aspects of the card. Okay. It's fair that all card text matter. You know, I'm minimizing it for the purpose of doing the quick and dirty evaluation, but you're right. Every single piece of card text matters. A one, one will certainly swing games, but yeah, the deck building cost of having this in your deck, at, at least as far as the future of standard goes, it's likely going to be too high. That's my guess right now. So we'll see where things are in a couple months. I'm buying it as as you're selling it as a important inclusion right now as a way to deal with red and to fill the curve. But long term, I'm a seller. Yep, same. Your number four. My number four is Sarkin Fireblood. This is a card that I've seen so many people just so far down on, and I don't get it. So let me read Sarkin Fireblood. One colorless, two red. Legendary Planeswalker starts with three loyalty. Plus one, discard a card if you do draw a card. Plus one, add two mana in any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast dragon spells. And minus seven, create four, five, five red dragon creatures with flying. It doesn't protect itself. It doesn't have enough loyalty. Why doesn't it kill anything? Because it's a different kind of Planeswalker. They don't all have to do the exact same thing. And Sarkin is designed to get a little bit of value, clean up your hand, function as a threat that opposing control decks, opposing mid-range decks are eventually going to have to answer. They can't allow you to, one, be discarding cards which benefit from being in the graveyard. You know, we talked about Spitfire before. Or, or is that what it's called? Spit Flame. Spit Flame. Um, that, that's a card you can certainly discard to Sarkin. Uh, Sarkin might be played with other cards which benefit from being in the graveyard. And the mana boost, we don't know what dragon decks look like right now, but I can buy that they're supposed to be bigger and you're going to play several effects which are getting you to the higher spots on the curb. And you know, even if you're not trying to play a six mana dragon, playing Bolus and a removal spell in the same turn is going to be very, very strong with Cirque and Fireblood. If you ever untapped with Chandra Torch of Defiance and it, added two mana to your mana pool... It, feel, like, it feels <laughs> nice. It feels very yes. good. And Sarkin's going to be adding two mana to a lot of mana pools. It's going to be a totally fine card. I saw someone refer to it as like the second coming of Tybalt. That's crazy to me. This card is very good. It's important for an entire archetype. And, and it's part of the reason why an entire archetype exists. Is there matchups where this is a weak card? Sure. Absolutely. I totally buy that. You're going to sideboard it out sometimes. But there's a lot of matchups that Sarkin's just going to completely take over and change the game fundamentally moving you two turns ahead where you should be on your curve or, you know, finding the gas you need to take over a game. So I'm, I'm a buyer on Sark and I think this is going to see quite a bit of play. They're also both just plus one abilities. Like you're yeah. always, you're always working always towards an it. ultimate. And Absolutely. the fact that Sarkin doesn't protect himself, like obviously that matters, but red also has maybe the best removal. Maybe black's removal is like a little bit better if you want to dip into like cast down and stuff. But like you have, magma spray and a braid as early things to actually protect this card and if you get to untap with it which is very likely because four damage is pretty tough early uh this is also like completely fine with heart of kirin 
Planeswalkers just in general are insane against control decks. Like you, you see these red decks turning to uh, Chandra, Karn, Angrath, things like that. And now you get another Planeswalker that you can potentially play main deck. And you know how you lose the control decks? It's by drawing like all your magma sprays and abrades and stuff and exactly. like not being able to do anything with them. Like this card is nice. Yeah. So is this on your list? Oh, no, it didn't make it. Oh, you got to be kidding me. No, it, it's it's my number two card. Okay, good. I thought I thought we were gonna come to blows over this one. <laughs> no, good. no, I think I think Sarkin is actually nuts. Yeah, I, I think Sarkin's very good. Your your point to the red removal being very good and maybe only second to black. There's going to be a red black dragons deck. Like that's kind of where I want to start with this card and and explore what's going on there. So to to write this card off is very very foolish, and I'm surprised really. I, I don't know why. I feel like things are trending in that direction for Sarkin, where people find it underwhelming. Actually, what is Sarkin selling for right now? I might, I might be ready to go off on our hot spec. Eighteen. Uh, I, I think if you bought it now, you would benefit in the short term. I think it'll hit thirty at some point. The, the question for me is, what tournaments are happening between now and actual full rotation? It is summer. What is going to cause demand for this card to go up? You know, like maybe yeah, post some- and it booms, but right. Maybe there's a point where you can buy even lower and you're just supposed to wait on it for the time being. Something has to be driving the value of this set and the cards all seem like pretty reasonably priced. And right. there's like crucible and scapeshift as like very good reprints that are mythic and are going to hold a lot of value. So like maybe Sarkin could drop again, but I don't know. Like if this is 18 on Star City. Like, if you can find it cheaper, like, probably do that, especially if you're, like, a red-black mid-range player. Like, you should probably have four of this card. Yep. And this card's good. End of story. So that's my number two. That was your number four. Right. So now we're on my number three. Okay. Which is a Johnny Adversary of Tyrants. Dude, mine too. We yeah. synced up, finally. I, I figured that because I know Nickel Bulls is your number one. Mm-hmm. Right, and my number one is a card that we haven't talked about yet. Do you think it might be my number two? Oh yeah, I guess we don't know your number two. I highly yeah. doubt it. I highly okay. doubt it. A Johnny adversary of tyrants, two dub dub, four starting loyalty, plus one. Put a plus one plus one counter on each of up to two target walking ballistas. Wait, I mean creatures. <laughs> Minus two. Return target creature card with CMC two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Minus seven, you get an emblem with, at the beginning of your end step, create three 1-1 one, one cats with lifelink. That's just like a weirdo alt. And I've seen people just be like, oh man, that alt is just like game over against a lot of decks. And it's like, I just don't ever want to do that, I think. Yeah, maybe it used to be, but uh, there's some problems with that alt now. Re- regardless, I still think a Johnny is absolutely great. I, I like the plus one and the minus two a lot for, you know, these like mid-rangey creature decks. I I think like both of those abilities are very strong, especially in combination with walking ballista. I think you do need to, or I need to do a CMC two or less search to figure out like what the most busted thing to be recurring is. Do you want to know a card I'm really excited to play with a Johnny and it it may be one that you don't expect at first blush. Kitesail Freebooter. I think that's an excellent card to play in conjunction with a Johnny. Yeah. Uh, Putting the plus one, plus one counter on the one, two flying body is going to do a lot for you. Returning it is going to do a lot for you. You know, you can use it proactively to project the Johnny, take away their Vraska's contempt and and things like that. So I, I'm into this card. I, I'm a total buyer. I think it creates new archetypes. I think it enables existing archetypes to some extent. And it's just one I really want to explore and see what it's capable of. I love the idea of a, a black, white, 
mid-range-ish type deck um, that just is playing all the good two mana creatures, all the value two mana creatures and and walking ballistas and generating a little card advantage here, messing up your opponent there. And then all of a sudden you're just kind of buried. It's just like the Knights, right? Like the Knights are probably the strongest CMC two or, two or less things, at least on rate. Uh, I mean, the Black Knight looks amazing with this, right? <laughs> you automatically get your uh, your 3-2. Three, three, two, two, then you can pump it up to a 4-3 and then X, nothing X can block proof, it anymore. X-proof from White Dog. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, that works. That works. That's still, you're safe. Okay. I, I panicked for a second that we wouldn't be able to target it with Harajani. Yeah. Can I pump it with white stuff? The answer is yes. Yes. Cool. Now, you know, moving forward, you'll be making lots of 4-3 Black Knights and it's going to be awesome because the Johnny's sweet. Well, uh, your number three is also a Johnny. My number two is Sarkin. What is your number two? So this was very close to being my number one card before I moved through this. And I was tossing back and forth between this and Bolas. My number two is Graveyard Marshal. I think this card is freaking excellent. And I'm surprised that people aren't more excited about it because I get that Scrap Heap Scrounger exists right now. And they're kind of competing a little bit for the same space. But a two mana, three, two zombie is very good. A zombie which can make more zombies when there exists a playable actual lord and a very playable suedo lord in the form of Liliana's Mastery is also very, very strong. Um, I guess that's two lords, by the way. Yeah, there's plenty of zombie lords you can lean on. And then I'm just thinking of scenarios where like it's turn eight and you top deck this and you pay eight mana and put seven power worth of guys on the board off, you know, a non-existent board previously. This card seems very, very strong to me. And if you're just asking me in the dark, no play testing, what would I want to play week one, which is likely to surprise people? It would actually be zombies. I think zombies might be very strong with the inclusion of Diagraph Ghoul, Graveyard Marshal. It has protection from Chain Whirler, unlike every other aggro deck, basically, which is super (laughs) soft to Chain Whirler. I don't know. Am I crazy for being super high on this card? No, this card is great. This was another one of my like top 15 cards or whatever. So my number one is Stitcher Supplier. Wow. So this is a card that would have been much higher if this was a all formats list, because I do believe this to be playable in a lot of other spots, but I was not expecting this as your number one card. Yeah. So Stitcher Supplier is B for a 1-1 zombie. When this enters the battlefield or dies, put the top three cards of your library in your graveyard. And this kind of goes hand in hand with Graveyard Marshal. Right. Uh, I I do think that both things are very strong. The thing that kind of stuck out to me for Stitcher Supplier specifically is that like, not only does it go in zombies, but if there's like some sort of like Graveyard Dark Dweller Oracle thing, like this is a card that you want, but also just this in the God Pharaoh's gift decks, I think it's awesome. Yeah, it does seem very strong there actually, now that you mention it. Also, what about some kind of, dragonish deck where you do have a bunch of spit flames and you're able to just get a bunch of them back in the late game uh that seems pretty plausible to me as well there's a lot of graveyard synergies out there uh that are worth exploring right now yeah i mean if if you're playing like the scarab god i don't know that you necessarily play stitcher supplier but if you're playing like more creatures right it's like this thing can mill into a champion away it's scrap heap scrounger like any sort of nonsense right you just need something for the one one body to do, and if that's like crew and aether sphere harvester or whatever, that's cool, right? Six cards of graveyard velocity for one mana is kind of unprecedented in the history of magic. I can't think of many other things that will get so many cards into your graveyard so cheaply. 
this this card is gonna pay you and it, it just strikes me as like oh this is like kind of similar to thraben inspector in the decks that want it interesting comparison um I, I think this is a great card it was certainly on my list um it sounds like we kind of were both thinking the same things i went with something I see is a little bit more powerful, but maybe a little bit more narrow, a little bit more archetype defined. Whereas you were just like, nope, I'm getting paid on all the graveyards. Yeah. This, uh, this is like the perfect card for me, but I also think that it's just going to show up in a bunch of different spots and just be good in all of them. Huh? Yeah. Well, I, if you had asked me <laughs> to put bets on what your number one card would be coming into this evaluation, stitcher supplier would have been a very, very dark horse for sure. Right. And Fountain of Renewal and Stitcher Supplier, like I am very, very high on one mana enablers for cool things. And both like life gain artifacts uh, and like zombies and graveyard stuff are like things that are very close, but have not really hit all that much. And mm -hmm. I think that these two cards are just very, very excellent for the various decks that want them. So uh, Stitcher Supplier dies a chain whirler. Whatever. You want it to die. You're fine with that. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, I'll probably have a Lord in play. Like, whatever. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of what's going on with these zombie decks is they're just going to... I mean, there's also the problem of Chain Whirler brick walling a ground force. Zombie decks are just going to get bigger than Chain Whirlers, and it's going to make it completely irrelevant. And you're probably going to be okay giving up your Stitcher Supplier to Chain Whirlers where it's getting you, you know, two activations of your your graveyard marshal in the late game or, you know, a ton of other synergies which are contained within these decks. So yeah, in interesting times. I, I don't know. I, I think zombies definitely is kind of a very clear point of pressure that you can put on week one of the format because it's an aggressive deck. And, you know, even if you mess up zombies, you're still going to be playing a lot of cheap creatures and attacking. That's a nice spot to be week one. And I think Dragons is another deck that I really want to explore. It sounds like you're a little higher on the life gain, crazy engine type stuff that's floating around well, out there. I think my top-down stuff, like stack ranked, is like Dragons at number one. That's what I want to do first. Mm -hmm. Second is Zombies slash Graveyard stuff. Third is Artifacts. And then like Distant, Distant fourth is like life gain stuff. Okay. Okay, cool. And I guess fifth after that is like Green Beatdown decks. Distant fifth, I'm assuming. Distance. Yeah, not looking forward to putting in the hours with those. Nah, that's that's like actual work. So how about on a scale of one to ten? How excited are you for this set? Uh I so I don't think a ton of stuff is going to necessarily change. If Chain Whirler gets banned plus this set becomes legal, then a lot of stuff is gonna happen, I think. Right? I mean, you've you've been talking about this a lot. Do you think Chain Whirler is getting banned? Come next week. I don't know, but it's like the, the format kind of blows as is. So I wouldn't be surprised. I would be surprised. Yeah. Not that that's not me saying I don't I don't believe it should be banned. I don't know. It's at bad. Some, at, it's at bad. some point it has to stop. It has to stop. And I'm not saying this is like the player base's fault, because because it's really not. But if we keep having an out to formats being bannings, the incentive to adapt goes away. You already see it. You can't argue that it, it's not happening. As soon as a card takes over a portion of the metagame, people call for bannings. And it happened with the Scarab God. People were calling for the Scarab God to be right, banned. It feels that, like a very long time ago. The Scarab God banning thing was stupid. But Chain Whirler is like 35% of the metagame, which is a lot. There have been several tournaments that have effectively been ruined, including the Pro Tour, where there's six or seven copies of a of, a red deck in top eight and like people just don't want to watch it. 
And there are entire swaths of cards that are unplayable. And when you go through a preview season, you're just like, oh, this would be cool, but, but like, chain guys to chain roller, right? That is so bad for business that they should, like, they could just ban it. And it's not like, oh, man, now my red decks are unplayable. No, your red decks are still great. I know. It, it's an unfortunate spot, I think, because they really need to get out of this ban spiral. But this is this is just one of those situations where I think it is plus EV to do something about it. And maybe it's just like, hey, ban it for four months. We'll reevaluate after rotation, you know? Yeah, I, I could see that. What about the argument that like a lot of the good red support is leaving with rotation and there's right. not a lot of major M19 events coming up right now. And so. red uh, losing a lot of powerful cards is a reason why I might want to reconsider. Okay. You know, because it's like, oh, well, maybe post-rotation red is just super bad and we expected like Chain Whirler to actually like prop up these decks. Like, yeah, it's a little bit weaker, but like this is the thing that you could turn to if X1s were the thing that people were doing. Then I think that would be fine. It'd just be like, okay, I have Chain Whirler back or whatever. Right. Yeah, I guess it makes me a little sad to think about going through, you know, another year plus having to do every single review saying, well, this would be good, but chain whirler. Like I really don't want to do that for much longer, but I think it's going to probably remain a reality for as long as the card is in the format. And as much as I, I think it's incredibly important for the long-term health of the game, for the, the cycle of bands to kind of stop. I don't know. I, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm not making the decision. That's what I'll say. Cause I see, I honestly see both sides. Do you think that it is ideal for them to, have like seven years of magic where they never pushed the envelope to anything. And it was like fine and cool, but they didn't have to ban stuff. Like obviously we're coming off the heels of like them having made a lot of colossal mistakes. Right. Yes. But this, this I think is very clearly a mistake and should be rectified to some degree. Maybe it's going to be rectified by time, but in the meantime, like how much money are they losing? I guess, you know what I think the best solution is? And this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but that's fine. We'll go with it. I think the best solution would just be for Wizards to come out and say, we're fundamentally reevaluating how we treat bans and standard. We will, from this point forward, be both banning and unbanning aggressively as each BNR list rolls up. And if that's the expectation, then fine. And I, I think you can expect players to operate under those set of circumstances. And if you do so with a an eye on preserving value of collections, which is like this whole other conundrum that you get into when you realize that, you know, wizards kind of shouldn't be paying attention to the secondary market, I guess ethically, but but still it exists and you have to consider it. You have to consider players' investment in the game. And I think if you just called and you were open and said, this is how we're handling things, at least for this period, we're going to try it out for six months, see what it's like with an aggressive take on bannings and unbannings and expect a lot of movement at each announcement, then you could get people to sign up. But as it stands right now, where like the goal is to get away from bannings, right? Like that's the stated, I don't know if it's stated, but that's the implied goal is that we don't want bannings in the game. It's not good when it's happening. And to keep failing at that and to keep calling up this kind of disastrous situation, BNR list after BNR list. I don't know. It's not a good look. That's for sure. No, it's not. But I think people look at bannings as just like colossal failures. And sometimes that is true, but it's like, you know, you tried to do cool stuff. Like what if, what if Aetherworks Marvel was actually just like cool and fun and, you know, it was like God Pharaoh's gift level of stuff. Right. 
Right. Well, you have to shift the whole paradigm behind bannings. You have to change the way people look at it. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is that it just has to be something which isn't taboo anymore. And you you present it that way. It allows us to take chances. It allows us to push cards. And I, I still don't know that the broader player base as as pro players i i think we'd be very much on board it's interesting things change all the time we don't have card availability issues so the average player i still think it's very problematic likely i'm gonna do some quick fact checking right now and obviously these things are not necessarily going to be related but uh gb pittsburgh had sub 1000 people and obviously, like, the summer is partly to blame for that. Yeah. And now I want to check a year from now if there was, like, a standard GP, like, in the same area. 800 players came to Omaha. I guess this was, like, during the Marvel area or era. Right. Another problematic era. You might have to go back, like, two or three years to really yeah. get a fair picture. 1170 in Amsterdam. And what was the one uh, Copenhagen was recent that was standard? 753 people in Copenhagen. I don't I don't know how difficult it is to get to Denmark from from Europe, but Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Certainly numbers are down. I think that's pretty clear. Ooh, okay. June 25th and 26th, 2016, Pittsburgh standard. Oh, that's great. This, I remember this one being kind of small though, too. And what's the format here? Like like bring me up to date on what standard this is. Is this like Siege Rhino standard or uh, this is green white token standard. And there okay. were there were fourteen hundred people in this tournament. Yeah, that's a big fall off. Because it's it's not like the green white tokens era was like heralded as one of the best standards ever, right? No, but it was like, it was better. It was it better was, for sure. Yeah, because this was like banned company era. But there were no bannings and no no super problematic energy mechanic and right. So I don't know, man. I like obviously this is super small sample size, but I think you can pretty clearly look at this and say that like you know people are talking with their wallets; they are not showing up. Like it's an issue. Yeah, it it is an issue. It's one that I don't have the right answer for though, and I I guess I just want to see what happens, and I, I'm prepared for either outcome. I just hope that in the future we have a either a new set of goals or you know, some success with what I perceive as the stated goals. And I, and I think what the majority of the player base perceives of the stated goals of just having ban free formats. Yeah. And like, that would be cool. Right. But obviously digital games are different and everything, but like they, they have plenty of like nerfs and buffs oh, yeah. and things like yeah. that going on. And they have a little bit of a better way to, you know, not reward, but just like give players their money back when something like that happens but it doesn't it's like okay so i crafted an entire deck because of this one mythic right and then this mythic gets nerfed and then yeah i get full dust value for that but what about the rest of the cards in the deck right right people are are taking losses there and they're not fine with it but it's just like a thing that they live with like i haven't played hearthstone in forever because like the the metagame just kind of blows in in my mind you know Mm -hmm. but like as soon as like a new set comes out or like they nerf like i play a little bit again so yeah, things are hard in the realm of actual card games. Uh, I'm not trying to downplay how difficult it is to make a billion cards and to never make a single mistake. But we were spoiled for so long, you know, go- going so long since the last set of bannings would be nice to get back to those times. Yeah, but like, I mean, were we spoiled? I don't know. It just seems like Theros kind of blue and like cons was great because I worked on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the one true set. Yeah. And, you know, I, we, we got some cards banned in Modern or whatever, but 
that that just means that like modern was fun for a little bit. I think like people enjoyed that, and now people get to do like crazy stuff in vintage or whatever. Like, is that a bad thing? Like, I, I don't think it is. I think pushing the power level every now and then is fine, but you got to have some balance. No, absolutely. But for me, I'm gonna look back and be like, oh man, you remember Treasure Cruise? Wasn't that really messed up? The the bigger problem is just cards with unfun play patterns and cards which cut off a percentage of the metagame. And that's probably more of what's going on here than any real power level concerns. And just making sure that all options are available to players as you know viable routes. It, it just stinks that X1s are like, meh, you can't really ever do it. You have to yeah, work real hard at it. I don't want Chain Whirler to get banned because I'm going to lose out on $16 or whatever. But like, what about the Toolcraft exemplars that are currently sitting in my binder not doing anything? Sure, sure. I think that's a good way of looking at it. You know, in all cases, except where people have a very, very finite selection of cards, there's probably other points of value. But it's hard to make people see that. Well, it's it's just not applicable for every person too. Like, Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, it's like, well, I own my red deck, right? But in this case, it's like, yeah, you lose Chain Whirler, but your deck is still good. So I don't know. Obviously, it's really complicated. I don't have uh, any answer for, any definitive answer at least, for what would be higher EV to do. Uh, I'm just saying that it is a possibility, and that's why I keep bringing it up as maybe something that'll happen, and maybe your X1s will be playable. I don't know. But uh, we do have a question if you want to do that. I would love to do a question. What do we have? Question of the week from Chris Zebert. Z-I-E-B-E-R-T. Is that Zebert or Zybert? What do you think? I would guess Zebert. Um, hopefully, Chris is not mad at us for now butchering his name several times. <laughs> but either way, Chris Z, what does he have to say? A lot of articles have been written recently about mulliganing aggressively in modern. The biggest one that comes to mind is an Ari Lax article from a few weeks ago. I played Black Blue Midrange in a PPTQ a couple weeks ago, and I applied a similar philosophy in control matchups. I mulliganed fairly aggressively for two mana card advantage sources like Glensleeve Siphoner and Argul's Bloodfast and felt very rewarded. Can you guys expand on when it is appropriate to mulligan aggressively and when we should be more conservative in our decision-making? Well, I think I think this is a really good question. I kind of took to Twitter to prop up Ari's reasoning and his article. I thought it was a really great piece, um, especially in the context of modern and how important aggressive mulliganing – wait, how do I plural it? Mulligan name. Mulligans? Aggressive mulligans. Thank you. Uh, How important those are in that format. People are now trying to take those lessons elsewhere. And I think that's a really smart thing to do, but they don't apply as broadly in the standard context as they do in the modern context. Because modern is very much about these, your deck is looking to do, in most cases, a very specific thing. And a lot of decks can do that with fewer numbers of cards in their hand. And that's kind of the key to understanding what Chris is talking about here. If you're aggressively mulliganing, um, you have to be doing so to a specific thing, a specific strategy, a specific interaction. And pointing out things like Argul's Bloodfast as persistent sources of card advantage in Black Blue Mirrors, spot on. That's what's going to ultimately determine the game. So if the matchup you're playing is determined by a very small set of interactions, then I think aggressive mulliganing is rewarded. Uh, or if you're playing a deck like Satron, which is only looking to do one thing, is able to do it with a much smaller collection of cards. You know, you only need four cards to have three Tron lands and a Karn and to run away with the game. That's another spot where you need to be mulliganing aggressively. 
So I think you understand what's going on here. I think this has kind of been unlocked. It has to have a very specific context and a specific reason why you're exploring these aggressive mulligans. Yeah. I mean, the, the question to me is just like, this has come up recently and people have been talking about it, but like how, when, and where do I apply this? And Chris tried this uh, with black blue against control and was successful in it. And it's just like, was this even right? And how am I supposed to know when to identify this in the future? And a lot of our answers so far have come down to, well, just do it. But uh, the, the real reason is that like context matters and you have to find out what is actually important. So in this specific example, playing black, blue, mid range against a control deck going long, the control decks cards are just way more powerful than yours. So you either need to be the beat down and close the game very early or just bury them in a, a bunch of card advantage. Black Blue, for the most part, has a lot of ways to do that with Bloodfast, with Siphoner, and then to some extent, things like Champion of Wits, uh, especially the Eternalized mode and like Glimmer of Genius and just like getting all those cards going while stopping your opponent's card advantage or at least stopping them from getting traction. Like don't let them stick it to Fairy or a Gear Hulk or a Scarab God or anything like that. And eventually like your two ones are just going to kill them. Right. So if you keep a normal hand where you're just like, Oh, I have like a counter spell or removal spell and a Scarab God or whatever, like that's not going to do it against control because you're not going to get any velocity. You're not going to be, you're not going to have like any advantage over them. So how do you get an advantage? And it is like with that card advantage and the velocity, like the stuff that Chris alluded to and like was aggressively mulliganing for now, I don't know that I would go down to like four or five cards, you know, live that Tron life trying to get an Argul's blood fast because that kind of defeats the purpose. But if your opening seven is a little sketchy, like you can certainly do better. Yeah. And all of these things are just like weighted points, right? Like it's, there's no hard and fast rule. I'm always going to do this style of mulliganing. It's just that if my hand's a little worse than I would like, I'm more inclined to mulligan in that spot and look for these things. But if I open up the absolute nuts and it doesn't have an Argul's Bloodfast, there are still circumstances under which I'm going to keep that hand. It's just a way to weight things in favor of a certain decision. And, and there's just no hard and fast rules. A lot of the times it's just a little push in one direction, a little push in another direction. And that's actually how you're being informed and how you're supposed to make your decisions. I think a lot of times people ask these questions and they want to say, oh, you do it here and you do it here always. It's just not going to happen. There's not going to be clear cut answers in sideboarding. It's all contextual. It's all constantly changing based on how your opponents are sideboarding, how they're playing the matchup, what they're looking to do to exploit your efforts. I mean, if it's a mirror and they're thinking the same way, are there ways you can change your sideboarding and pressure them for their inability to keep seven card hands? So th there's always things at issue, always things you should be adjusting to, shifting around. So no hard and fast answers, but I think we hit on a lot of the points that you need to be considering when you're going to start looking for those type of aggressive mulliganing chances. So standard for the most part is about a lot of small edges. And I think in this specific matchup, like understanding how the games are going to play out and what your deck needs to do in order to win, I think is going to give you a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the time that is more applicable in modern, I think, because the decks are trying to do very specific things. And it's like, well, I'm a, I'm a 3.5 deck. They're, they're a turn four deck. 
So if I just mulligan like a little bit more aggressively, like I'm going to do my thing and be a little bit faster than them. And that's what I need to do. Right. But in standard, it's mostly just like I have lands and spells that interact with my opponent. So I just keep it because there's not really anything specific that you're trying to accomplish. You know, it's like you sideboard a little bit so that you don't have dead cards against them. And that's, you can kind of do your thing. But like most of the time you're not looking for like anything specific and hyper-focused, but like that's basically what modern is. Right. Do you think that's a flaw in, to some extent with standard sideboarding and the way we build standard sideboards? We, we tend to stay very general, you know, look for small edges and, and broader answers. Should there be more of a focus on finding these really razor honed game plans and specific things we're trying to do in specific matchups? Or is it just too difficult with the standard card base? Yeah, just your, your things aren't going to work out. Like you can try and do like this synergy thing effectively and just be like, oh, I'm going to like do these things with my, with these cards. And uh, this is what's going to be like super effective against like this type of metagame or whatever. But then you, nothing is ever exactly what you expect, right? Like you're just because like red is 35% of the metagame, you're not going to play against it like 10 times in 15 rounds. Sure. So you can't really do anything specific. You're better off just like building your deck in a range and trying to handle like multiple different archetypes and different threats and stuff like that, or like prevent or present a broad spectrum of threats rather than trying to do one thing specifically, because like, especially now there's like uh syncopate, the rest, like cheap counter spells in negate essence scatter. There's Vraska's contempt cast down like a bunch of good removal. Like your synergies can get broken up pretty easily. So you're just better off playing like the best stickiest, most powerful cards. Okay. I like that approach. But- that's just yeah, it's just never going to be true in modern because someone else is just always going to be like, well, I have a deck that does busted stuff, you know? Right. Right. So yeah, formats uh format differences matter a lot how you approach the game for sure. Right. And I think that even goes back into older formats as well and and kind of the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more inclined you are to take this aggressive mulliganing to heart. You know, that's why we see Serum Powder was a vintage playable card much earlier than it was anything else. And to some extent, it may still only remain playable in vintage, although you see it pop up in Legacy and Modern every now and then for exactly that reason. You're very inclined to find specific cards, do specific things, execute specific game plans. And anytime you can get an extra mulligan in there, um, you're incentivized to do so. So interesting stuff how this is kind of stretched back across formats. Although I think actually the order of aggressive mulliganing probably goes like vintage number one, modern number two, legacy number three, which is weird. I, I'm not sure exactly why things break out that way or if I'm even right, but that's my my gut instinct. No, I, I, I do think you're right. I think, well, popper is probably up there with modern, I think. Yeah, that sounds right to me. But legacy is kind of similar to standard in that like the, the format is now these decks that have a bunch of generic answer type things. There are certainly some decks like reanimator that are just like, I'm going to turn one you. Mm-hmm. And if you are a reanimator, you have to mulligan, like you're probably going to turn one your opponent. And if you're playing against reanimator, you have to mulligan as if they're going to turn one you, you know? So it is very specifically matchup dependent, but for the most part, it's like I have a ponder and a death, right. And a lightning bolt or whatever. Like I'm good. Yeah. Force of will does a lot to change the equation, right? And the ubiquitousness of force of will is certainly changing the the mulliganing scale to some extent. Yeah. And for the blue deck specifically, like brainstorm tends to just fix a lot of the problems that you have where you would just rather have more resources to utilize with brainstorm. Very good point. Yes. And, and force of will to some degree, right? Like you don't want to mold a five and then force and have just have force, right? no permanence left. 
Right. So yeah, interesting stuff. I just booked for U.S. Nationals today. How exciting! Do you have any uh, any idea what you might be playing over at Nationals? Uh, rip, rip me! I am dead. I am <laughs> no chance. <laughs> I am dead money in the tournament. I think uh, I've been testing a lot the last few days, and I'm certainly going to do a lot more. Uh, probably tonight, Wednesday, Thursday, and then think a lot on the plane. So we'll figure it out. I have red black in my back pocket. We'll see how that goes. But uh, working on breaking the format, just snapping it in half. And obviously, I'll be posting my deck list on the Patreon for those $3 up subscribers. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. I might uh, be doing some PPTQing this weekend. Uh, Hell yeah. What format? Uh, standard actually so if you got something spicy send it right this way we'll see if we can make it a a two-win weekend although mine will be much less meaningful than yours still wins or wins oh man it all starts here (laughs) sounds good it all starts here pt guild of ravnica incoming reckless reveler i like it all right Uh, i guess uh that's game (laughs) 